Raise your hands. How many of you grew up with this childhood story of the five loaves and the two fishes from this little boy's lunchbox? Yeah, remember the flannel board, right? I do too. Well, I get to burst your bubble today. <laughs> Let me tell you what this story is not about. It's not about the faith of a little boy. According to the text, he may have been a young boy, but he also could very easily have been a man in his 20s or even a slave in the Greek. It's not a story about how we should share with those in need. Now, that's a good moral concept, but uh, I guess I should apologize to all the moralistic preachers out there. That is not what this text is about. It's not a story about how Jesus multiplies the faith we give him. That's simply just bad theology. And finally, it is not a story about communion, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Apologies to my Catholic friends. So if I've just completely ruined your childhood, let me spend the next few minutes and make up for it by teaching you the real meaning of this wonderful Wonderful text. The title of the sermon is The Bread of Life. And our timeless truth is the bread of life is delightfully eaten by some and spit out by others. You say, well, that's kind of an interesting theme given this text. This is actually a story about who Jesus is. It's, it's a glimpse of his glory. And it is this understanding about who he is that is meant to elicit a response, and we're going to see two vastly different responses to it today. This miracle serves a very unique purpose, and that purpose is to call people to bow the knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Pray with me, and we'll look at this text together. Our gracious Father, we do thank you for this body of believers. We pray for those who are unable to be with us today, for Esther and for Barbara who have COVID and are recovering, and uh, for those who are traveling. Father, we are so grateful for each and every person you have given us, as we know that you have divinely ordained gifted people with exactly the right gifts to be a part of this body. And through that uh, gifting and that organization of this gift set, you have equipped this body of believers to do that which is beyond what we could normally do in our own strength. And so, yes, we are gathering this Christmas season to celebrate the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and how Jesus sunk himself into human flesh to live the perfect life, the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserved, absorbing the just wrath of God that was due for us in order that mercy might be extended. And of course, we know that it does not end on the cross, but on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits of our resurrection. And we know that one day we will be like him, and we will be with him if we have truly repented of our sins and placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so we want to take a moment here as we 
get ready to receive the ministry of the word. And we want to be grateful for this church and grateful for those who are joining us today to listen on and to worship with us. And Father, we pray specifically for those among us who have yet to commit their life to Jesus Christ. We pray that today, as Brian said, would be the day of their salvation. And for the rest of us, Lord, we pray that the nourishment of your word would strengthen our faith, would grow us into Christ's likeness, would make us more effective ambassadors and tools in the Redeemer's hand. We are excited and delighted to see what you have for us today. Show us your truth. Warm our hearts with it. With it. Uh, make us bold in our faith. And as we scatter from here this afternoon after sharing a meal together, and we spend this week in and amongst our family and our friends, many of whom are not believers, may we be those who share the bread of life with them. May we be the ones who, as one beggar shares to another where the food is, the food of eternal life. Use us, Lord. May this word not stop with the knowledge in our heads, but may it pass through deeply, piercing our heart and out every fiber of our being whether it be in conversation and in action and in all of the above, may we impart the word of God in our very lives because you have saved us and left us here to do that. So with great excitement, we approach this text. We pray for understanding. We pray for illumination by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we stop just momentarily to confess our sins to you. We ask that you would forgive us for both sins of commission doing that which we know that we should not do, and sins of omission, doing that which we know that we should do. Father, we ask your forgiveness. And as believers, we know that those sins have been nailed to the cross. So clear our mind. Give us the grace of understanding and application. And may we please you with what we do with your word. And all God's people said, Amen. So you're probably thinking, hey, Pastor, we're in Hebrews. What's going on? You know, maybe Shar Sadley's angry with me back there, right? She doesn't like to take a break from Hebrews. Well, we're going to take two weeks off. We're going to dip into the book of John. And the evangelist does something very interesting in comparison to the synoptic gospels. What do I mean when I say synoptic Gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic. They are generally chronological in walking through the narrative of the life of Christ. John, on the other hand, is theological. That doesn't mean that the other ones don't have theology in it. They do. But John focuses mainly on a particular point, And he uses seven signs to undergird and reinforce that point. The theme verse for this point is found, you might write down John chapter 20, verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Mashiach in Hebrew, in Aramaic, the Son of God, and that 
believing you may have life in His name. John says, I want to show you having walked with Him, having believed in Him, having lived my life following Him, I want to show you seven miraculous signs because I want you too to believe that Jesus is not only the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, but that He is in fact God of very God, the Son of God. And so by the time you finish the book of John, you're at a crossroads, right? What did I say last week? Jesus is either who He says He is, or He's not. He is either the God who became man without giving up any of His deity, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, who died in your place, or He's crazy. He's a liar. But it can't be both. Let me be very blunt. I'm going to give us a taste of it today. When you finish the book of John, you must make a decision. And not making a decision is a decision. No pressure today. <laughs> well, I can't think of a more perfect passage, both this week and next week, during the Christmas season to focus on who Jesus is. And what a better way than to look at these miraculous signs whereby He explains Himself. He shows His deity as the God-man. Now, what we're going to look at today are verses 1 through 15, but frankly, they cannot be understand, understood in context unless you take in the latter part of chapter 6, which we will do. But I'm going to move through it very quickly. I want to leave the reading primarily for your homework. And I would encourage you this week during your quiet time to read through all of John chapter 6. But then take what we've learned here and use it like a, like a transparency, almost like an outline. Almost like a color by number, you might say. And lay it over the text and say, oh, I get it. This is not about the faith of a little boy. This is not about, you know, uh, multiplying, you know, food and sharing with others. No, no, no. It's about something so much more. And one more thing before we get going. When you're at your Christmas parties, when you're celebrating Christmas with your family, and they ask you, how was church? Did you learn about the baby Jesus? Say, no, my pastor's crazy. He taught us about the feeding of the 5,000. And they're going to say, well, really? I know that story. Why at Christmas time? Say, I'm glad you asked. And share with them the truth of the bread of life. Amen? It's a great opportunity. Three points will guide our time. Sign, S-I-G-N, sign. Number two, significance. And number three, sovereign. This will help us understand what this miracle is really about. Let me set the stage for us. Look at verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. 
Matthew tells us with the corresponding passage that Jesus withdraws from the crowds after hearing that his cousin John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod Antipas. He and his disciples got into a boat, sailed to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and then John tells us, because later on in the first century it became known as Tiberius, after Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius was a town founded by Herod. And so he's making the connection there, explaining to them in popular culture, this is where they were. And anyway, he says, this crowd has been following him, and they find out where he's going, and they make their way on foot across the north side of the lake. Hey, this Jesus guy's been healing the sick, he's been doing these signs. Jesus gets the bad news about John the Baptist. He wants to take just a little bit of a retreat. They get in the boat. They go to the other side of the lake. They think they're arriving at a nice little conference center to relax a little bit. And wouldn't you know it, the place is packed with the same people. And feeling compassion, he goes ashore and begins to heal their sick. If you had any doubt whether Jesus was God, that right there should answer it. Because what would you feel like? I'd be exhausted. I'd be peopled out. I'd want my retreat, but he felt compassion. And that is the stage in which this miracle is expressed. Look at one more thing, verse 4. John also tells us what time of year it was. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Now you know that Passover is the biggest celebration of the year. It's, it's on the level of a Jewish July 4th. Uh, except in place of fireworks, there is the slaying of an unblemished lamb. And John is drawing our attention to the very thing that they celebrate. And saying this Passover lamb that you celebrate is actually standing right in front of you. This Passover lamb that only provides temporal salvation is only a picture of what is to come. It points to Jesus who provides eternal salvation. Who is the Lamb of God who came to what? Take away the sin of the world. He makes this connection and you can see it. Readers looking back say, oh, I see what he's doing. Well, let's look at the first point, sign. Starting in verse 5. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Now the reason he says this to Philip is because Philip is from Bethsaida, which is right around the quarter. So it kind of sounds something like this. You see this throngs of people coming towards you as you have tried to escape them. It's been an all-day Bible conference. There's lots of teaching. So, Philip, this is your neighborhood. How are you going to feed them? What are you going to do? Is there a diner around here that you can go and get all these sack lunches? Watch how Philip responds. I'll read to you from Luke 
chapter 9, verse 12. This is from the disciples. Send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and find lodging and get something to eat. But he says, no, Philip, you tell me. What should we do? Where are we going to find the money to get their lunch? And Philip, thinking in the temporal, says, are you serious? Verse 7, 200 denarii would hardly get each of them just a little bite. Now, what's a denarii, right? No one has a denarii in their pocket here this morning. If you go to Google, you can't find the exchange rates for a denarii. But we know from Scripture and we know from history that a denarii was a day's wage for a day laborer. Now, now that starts to translate, right? Because you know if you go to Denton, right off 377, or you, you go to Plano, you know there's a particular area where you can pick up day laborers to come help you do yard work or, or home maintenance. And you know there's a standard wage rate. It's $100 a day plus lunch. So a denarii then is worth about $100 a day. But what does he say here? 200 denarii. He's saying $22,000 would hardly be enough to give everyone a cracker. That's eight months worth of wages. Rabbi, what are you asking me to do? And Philip's like this. Because he can only think within the realm of we have to feed these people and we need money. What has he missed out on? If you go back to verse 1, what's been going on? Jesus, their teacher, has been healing the sick. He's been doing what's called first-class miracles. So Philip kind of fails the test. What about Andrew? If Phil is looking for money to solve his problem, Andrew is looking to steal some kid's lunchbox. Verse 9. Well, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But that's not going to take us very far. Now, it's kind of interesting to look at what he's saying here. History tells us that, that barley was the food of the poor. These aren't wheat loaves. These aren't your Petridge farm, you know, 30 slices. No, these are... Well, these are like Susie's little cakes back there, <laughs> except they taste a lot worse because it's barley, you know. So he, he's, got, he's got a few loaves. And, and, and the ESV tells us that the fish here was probably pickled or dried. I mean, you know, these are little perch or minnows or something. This is nothing. And so it's time, John says, for another sign. As if you haven't gotten it so far just watch this. Verse 10, Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, and their number was about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. In two simple verses, this amazing, massive miracle is described and summarized. Do you realize what's going on here? Well, first of all, it says there were 5,000 men. Who are they not counting? Women and children. 
This crowd numbers upwards of 20,000. That's the size of Colleyville being fed out of a sack lunch. And not only that, but it says that they ate to their fill and there were 12 baskets left over. If you're reading this, you only come to one conclusion. This guy has got to be the Messiah. He fits all the descriptions we see. The Messiah would bring blessing and abundance. And of course, we've already seen his first miracle. What? The wedding of Cana? Six massive water pots he turned into the best Cabernet Sauvignon you've ever had. Wedding feast, celebration, bread in abundance. This guy's got to be. He, he, he's got to be the Messiah. He brought the winery to the wedding. And here he didn't just keep these folks from starving. He backs up the bread truck. Well, now watch what happens with that. Our second point, significance. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, truly this is the prophet. Circle that. The prophet who is to come into the world. Now, that's not a name we're used to with regards to the Messiah, is it? But if you're a Jew, you know exactly what they're saying. Deuteronomy 18, 15 Moses is speaking to the congregation of Israel on the plains of Moab. They're looking across the Jordan River to the promised land. They're about to go in. And he says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen you shall listen to him. And every Jew knew from the time he was just a little boy or a little girl that that was referring to the Messiah who was to come. The ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. He would be the ultimate seed who would bring the blessing. He would be a prophet like Moses, but greater. By the way, does that sound a little bit like what we've been learning in Hebrews? Yeah, your Moses is good, but Jesus is better, right? Your Moses did a lot, but Jesus... So this phrase pops up 1,500 years later, and these, these people are basically saying, this guy's got to be the Messiah. He's, I, we haven't seen anyone do this. It has all the, the earmarkings of it. Think about it. Healing the sick. Giving sight to the blind. Feeding a nation. Oh, no, this is the new Moses. This is the Messiah. Now, watch them ask. <laughs> this is so interesting here. They, they, they want him badly to be the Messiah, right? And Jesus knows it. But did he come to be made king after feeding 20,000 people? Say no. Where was he going? He was going to the cross. He knows he came to do the will of the Father. And so it would be one thing if they said, you are the Messiah, that's great, tell us what to do. But that's not what they do. They say, you are the Messiah, and what's going through their head? 
No more Rome. We get to be an independent country again. We get a new king. He's going to fulfill my every wish. And watch what happens in verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. It's not my time. Now, I don't know what this looked like. I don't know how you run away from 20,000 people. I don't know how you slip out the back door. I don't know if it was miraculous. I don't know. But his kingdom was not what they expected. And his messiahship was not going to meet their every desire. He came to do the will of the Father. So they slip away. He slips away. His disciples get into the boat to cross the lake again. And in verses 16 through 21, we know that miracle well, right? It's Jesus walking on the water. But that's another sermon for another day. So hang with me. You can read that later. Skip over that to verse 22. Verses 22 through 69, we're going to see this bread of life theme picked up again. Disciples are going across the lake. Jesus slips away. He meets them walking on the water. They're together again. And it appears that much of the crowd has camped out for the night, wakes up the next morning and is like, hey, where's Jesus? Where's this guy that's been doing all the miracles? Where's this guy that's fed us? And the first words out of their mouth are, where'd he go? And the second words out of their mouth are, we got to go find him. And so what do they do? They chase him down and they go across the lake. Now you think when they see Jesus, they're going to say, you're the Messiah. Tell us what to do. Tell us how you did that. But watch what they say. How did you get here? Why did you leave us? Jesus knows what's in their heart. Verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you for on him the Father God has set his seal. So they respond in verse 28 by saying, Okay, so what does that work look like? Verse 29, Jesus answers them and says, This is the work of God that you, what? Believe in him whom he has sent. Let me just pause there. John is showing us signs. The people are in pursuit of Jesus because of these signs. When they finally get in front of him, they don't say, therefore we believe in you. They say, what? How did you do that? Can you give us another? It's never enough. Why did you leave us? He says, Believe in me. They say, believe in you? Give us a sign. That's the, that's the irony of this whole passage. Give us a sign. Yesterday, feeding 20,000 people wasn't enough. 
Let me translate, give a sign for you from the way the Jews mean it. Prove it. That's what they're saying. Prove it. Jesus has just said, believe in him who he has sent, verse 29. In verse 31, they say, prove it. Give us a sign. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Give us a sign. Give us more bread. Do another miracle. Verse 32, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. I am the prophet that is greater than Moses. This is the bread that you believe in me that is greater than the manna in the wilderness. This Passover lamb is just an animal. I am the true Passover lamb. I am the bread that is better than manna. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Wow. Now look at verse 40. He gets personal. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, what does that mean? Who sees the Son, who understands who He is, and believes in Him, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. You're telling me that is the miracle about the five loaves and two fishes? That's about the little boy who shared his lunchbox? Yeah. Jesus is the bread of life. They wanted a Messiah of their own making. They wanted to follow Him for the bread that filled their tummies. And He says, no, 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 I'm the bread of life. So now look at our third point, sovereignty. We have a sign that shows that Jesus is in fact the Christ. The long-awaited prophet. God of very God. One more sign in the seven that shows that Jesus is the Son of God. And with each glimpse of His glory, we see the realization of His deity and His authority. And with each miracle, it's meant to elicit a response, a bowing of the knee, a turning from sin and self-righteousness, a committing one's life to follow the King of Kings. Will this crowd do it? Let me ask you a question. Would you have done it? I mean, I think we all think we would have done it. Feed 20,000 people? I know my Old Testament enough. This guy looks like the Messiah. I've already agreed with that, right? I've seen the signs. All he is saying is, Bow the knee. Don't just believe it up here. They already believe it up here that he's the Messiah, right? He's saying, step down from your throne and follow me. Will this crowd do it? Look at verse 42. 
They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Translation, is this not the carpenter's kid down the street? From the lower middle class family, the regular Joe, we grew up with him. I know his family. He's nothing special. But he just said he, he came out of heaven. You know what? Maybe Jesus came on a bit strong. He's not very culturally relevant, is he? He could have spent a, a longer period of time trying to convince them. Maybe, maybe said, great, you now think I'm the Messiah. Let me kind of just prove it to you a little bit more. But no. Jesus lays it out there and says, I am God. I'm not a good teacher. I'm not just a wonderful prophet. Now he's got a chance to back off here. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll soften the message, right? What's he going to do? Look at verse 44. He turns up the volume. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Hey, just in case you didn't understand, let me explain it another way. No one can come to me unless the Father draw, who, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I'm exactly who I said I was. In these few verses, he lays out the gospel in such a fat and heavy way that you have to make a choice. He covers the sovereignty of God, the depravity of man. In one fell swoop, he wipes away free will and he focuses on salvation being a gift of God through one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. It is inescapable. Verse 47, truly, truly, he turns the volume up even more. I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Whatever you've been trusting in for your salvation, 613 laws from the Hebrew Scriptures, you go into Shabbat, you praying X number of times a day, you doing this and not doing that, you think you're holy because you haven't done this, that, and the other, none of it gets you to first base. You want eternal life? The Father says, comes through me. And just in case they didn't understand the significance, he's going to explain it antithetically. You know what I mean by that, antithetically? Antithetically is like saying, um, that's what everyone hates in this postmodern world. It's saying, this is what it means by this is what it doesn't mean. I'll give you an example. If I was to do a sermon on how it's very important that men be godly spiritual leaders in their home, everyone goes, amen, pastor. Amen, amen, good stuff. Love it, give me more. Wonderful, amen, amen. But then if I teach it antithetically and I say, well, let me, let me explain what I mean. And men, you are not being a good spiritual leader if you don't pray with your wife. Oh, now, now you're getting nasty, pastor, okay? Now you're getting in my kitchen. Who are you to say? You see what I'm saying? But that's how Christ teaches many times. So he takes them to the foot of the cross 
And he says, I am the Son of God. And they start to push back a little bit. And he says, and let me explain what that means. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You're asking for bread again, like the bread I gave you yesterday. You want more of it. You say you've had it in the past. Your forefathers had it. Man in the wilderness. Yeah, they ate it and they died. It does not save. In fact, the bread I gave you yesterday that filled your tummies delayed your funeral by one day. However, what you're looking at is the bread of life. And if you partake of me, and he actually says, if you will eat of me, right? Look at verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. And what he does is he makes it offensive. Let me explain what I mean. Not for the sake of being offensive. But what is he calling them to do? What is he calling us to do? Any unbelievers. He's calling us to step down from our sin and self-worship, our self-righteous throne, and bow the knee to Christ. Well, how do you do that? You have to, you have to turn away from your pride. You have to turn away from thinking I'm basically good, that I can do it on my own. And so what he does is he puts it out there and he, he pokes at their pride a little bit. Come on. And of course it's offensive to them. But what he's painting this picture is, is that in order to receive the bread of life, there's no work you can do on your own. You have to believe but believing is saying, I can't do it. There is no good within me. There is no relationship I have that connects me or that gives me a leg up. He knows that the greatest hurdle to them bowing the knee to Christ is the two-sided offensive coin of authority and accountability. That they have to lay it down. They have to lay down their ethnicity, that they're Jewish. They have to lay down their own righteous works, so to speak. They have to lay down that the law will save, which it will not. And they have to, yes, bow the knee to this carpenter's boy. The one who they all knew. The one who they could beat in sports. Or maybe they made better grades in, in school. I read this and it's still heavy to me. It's still strong. This is, Jesus is taking them to a crossroads. 
And yet, if we get hung up in the offensive language, we miss the beauty of the gift to which he is calling us. What gift is he calling us to? Eternal life. We forget the reason as to why he is here. To purchase a bride. What's he going to say in John 17? All that you have given to me will come to me. He's here to save his creation who shook their fist at God in rebellion and said, I don't want to have any part of you. God says, you were created for worship. And we said, I'll worship myself. Thanks. We have to realize this wonderful gift. And what he's putting in front of them is that they've got to die to self. And there's going to be two responses here. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, those are the people following him, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Translation, Jesus, this is radical. His 12 are saying, even if I kind of understand what you're saying, this is really offensive. And as a result, verse 66, look at this. Many of his disciples, many of his followers, withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They left. They were willing to take the free bread, but they didn't want the bread of life. Because though the bread of life was free and they could not work for it, they had to lay everything down in order to receive it. Right? They were willing to devour the croissants, but not at the cost of their own personal thrones. And they spit it out like a kid does his vegetables. Mark 8, 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. I wish I could talk to some of those disciples who said, that's offensive. I don't want it. And they withdrew from following him. What have we seen in the, in the book of Hebrews? Oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. And the preacher's saying, hey, that's great. But when times get tough, don't drift. Don't turn back. Hold fast. Can I show you the other response? Look at Jesus turn from the crowd and he turns around to the 12 in verse 67. And this, this almost makes you want to cry. You do not want to go away also, do you? You know, I think we forget that even though Jesus is the Son of God, that He is also fully human with all of the emotions that go with it. And He has just cared for. Remember, He felt compassion. He cared for the ill. He healed the lame. He fed them. He's calling them to come into the kingdom. And people turned from Him. And He turns around to 12 and He says... You guys going too? 
Watch Peter respond. Lord, verse 68, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, I promise you, it's not because Peter's smarter than anyone else here, because we know later on he's not. But that is the response of a repentant heart. That is the response of the faith and repentance that the Father gives that draws us to him through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the response. The bread of life was tasty to him. But the bread of life to those who left tasted rancid to them. To one, it was like, it was like uh, C.S. Lewis is like a Turkish delight, wasn't it? You know? The, the words of eternal life. Can I have more? To the other ones, it was like asparagus, okay? When I was a kid. They spit it out. 2 Corinthians 2.16 To the one we are the smell of death and to the other the fragrance of life. By the way, do you realize why then being ambassadors for Christ this side of heaven it's difficult? Because there are only two responses to the gospel. And we are messengers of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, but the message is offensive. But to those who God the Father is drawing through Jesus the Son, it's Turkish delight. But to others, it's distasteful. <laughs> this miracle is about the bread of life. And so I want to leave us with something today. I want to leave us with the question, so which group are you? You may have received the bread of life and are confident that Christ has forgiven your sins. But let me ask us a question. Do we daily bow the knee to his authority and accountability? Do we delightfully partake of the word, realizing that it is the very word of God that has brought us eternal life? Do we love what God loves and hate what God hates? Has our throne been thrown into the trash heap of life? And do we daily submit to the bread of life? Or do you find the word of God offensive to you? Do you find God's authority distasteful? You know, it's interesting that John uses a phrase that goes with this over and over throughout his book. He calls us to abide in him. To abide in him. That he doesn't see salvation as merely just a one-time event, though it is, in a sense... But salvation fleshes itself out that we grow in Christ through sanctification by drawing near, that's Hebrews, by abiding in Him, by, by daily, delightfully submitting to Him. These are the words. He is the very bread of life. Is it tasty to you? Or is it not? And if you're here today and you realize that you are the one who wants this bread, you are the one who, who wants to step down from your throne. 
who wants to repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. That you're tired of being a taker and just asking God, give me, give me, give me, give me the the things I want, the bread for today. But that you want to follow Christ. Do not leave here today without talking to one of us. Almost anyone who goes here to Metro Bible just grab and say, what was the pastor talking about? What does he mean, the bread of life? What does it mean to believe in him? What does it mean to follow Christ? That's what needs to be preached at Christmas. Because you can't have the incarnation unless you have the propitiation and the glorification. You can't have the birth of Christ unless you understand that he came to call us to follow him and he made it possible by dying on the cross and satisfying the Father's wrath. I'm going to pray for us here in a moment. We're going to sing a few more songs. But I want you, especially if you're a member or regular attender here at Metro, silently to join me when I pray for the salvation of the lost. Okay? Let's pray that the Lord will do what we cannot, right? We can't convince people into heaven but he has left us with his word. And let's pray that the Father is drawing the lost to him. Amen? So, Father, we come before you as I lead this body of believers in prayer, and we pray that this word might not only impact us who are believers and call us to daily submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, to feast on his word, to be grateful for the eternal life that the bread of life has provided, but that we would also be good to obey and spread the good news, to share where the bread is. But specifically, Lord, right now we ask for those who have yet to believe. We pray that today is the day of their salvation, that you would grant them repentance, that they would turn from their sin and self-rule, and they would bow the knee to Jesus Christ trusting in who He is, the very Son of God, and what He did, His death, taking our place on the cross for salvation. That there is no work which will get them, but that our work is to believe in Him whom the Father has sent. Oh, Father, we ask, let today be the day of salvation for those who are lost. And we thank You, Lord, that you did the same for us. Now we're going to sing praises to our King. I pray that our hearts are lifted high, and I pray that the worship is pleasing to our God. In Jesus' name, amen.